Amen. Thank you so very much. Well, he graduated from his community high school, went on to serve in the United States Army and the Army Air Force. He's flown helicopters, owned a couple of airplanes, I think owned maybe five motorcycles, has several inventions to his name, opened his own service station, built a marine. I could go on about a lot of things that this person did, served his church and his Lord, and was born on September the 1st, 1919, exactly 100 years ago today. Would you join me in wishing happy birthday to Brother J.A. Sammons? J.A., would you stand, please? 100 years old today. And I think he was 98 when he flew that helicopter, somebody told me. Brother, I just hope (laughs) if I make it to 100 that I do it as well as you have. God bless you, my friend. Happy birthday. It probably started out as a mechanic's motto, but it has been used by athletic teams, by cooks, by politicians, and even church members. I am referring, of course, to that timeless bit of wisdom and that proverb, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Exactly. Now that philosophy seems to make good sense in in just about every kind of way, right? If you have a good thing going, don't experiment with other options. If, If you're successful in what you're doing, don't mess things up by trying something different. If something's working well, it ought to be left alone. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. However, as is so often with spiritual things, God turns that conventional wisdom absolutely upside down. And in doing so, He really turns your life and my life upside down. Because God says, if it ain't broke, I can't bless it. If it ain't broke, I can't use it. If it ain't broke, it really has very little value in my economy. See, that's God's view. Our culture, church, has programmed us to avoid broken things and abandon broken things and even despise broken things. But God 
actually takes pleasure in broken things. While we pursue happiness and wholeness and affirmation and feeling good, I need to tell you this morning, God is not nearly as interested in those kinds of things as we are. Did you know that? Can you handle a big spiritual truth this morning? It's a truth that's certainly not original with me, and perhaps many of you have already heard something like this, but for a lot of Christians, this is like getting hit with the proverbial ton of bricks. (laughs) So brace yourself if you're not familiar with this big spiritual truth. God's primary goal for my life is not happiness. It is holiness. God's primary goal for my life is not to meet my every need, my every whim, take care of my every desire. God's purpose for my life is to make me like Jesus. It's to form me and fashion me into the image of His Son. That means He sometimes has to do some things in my life that may not make me happy. That may not be what I desire to see happen. But God doesn't care as much about my happiness. He wants my holiness. He wants me to become like his son. So here's a spiritual fact that goes along with the spiritual truth. For the child of God, genuine happiness, true happiness can only be found in our pursuit of holiness. But here's the thing. The only pathway to holiness is through brokenness. It's through brokenness. And that's what I want to talk about this morning as we begin to to focus on revival and renewal and a work that I pray God is going to do in your life and my life and in the life of this church. What is brokenness? I want to share some truths about brokenness with you this morning. How do we define this word? This is one of those words, really, that almost defies description or definition. The word brokenness is sort of like the word love. You've really got to experience it in order to understand it. It's like a fragrance that we can detect that that we can describe, but it's very, very hard to define. However, there are some things in God's Word that helps us understand this concept of brokenness before God. And I just want to do something here this morning before we begin to look at these things. I am tremendously burdened this morning as your pastor that we allow God to do what He wants to do in this place. And I'm incredibly burdened that there's some barriers and there's some attitudes and there's some actions that have inhibited this and could even be inhibiting it today. And we've already prayed for God's Spirit to fall in revival, but as we come to look at His Word this morning, church, we need spiritual ears to hear, and we need spiritual eyes to see, and we need wills that are open to the movement of the Holy Spirit. So would you pray with me again and ask God to give us this kind of 
posture and position before him this morning. Heavenly Father, as we come now to look at your word, we need the illumination of your Holy Spirit. We need him to move in power. We need him to be our teacher. And so, Lord, as we look at this concept of brokenness and all that it means in the lives of your people, oh, God, would you help us to focus? Give us spiritual attention this morning. Don't allow anything to distract us as we wait before you this morning. It's the prayer that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what are some truths about brokenness? Let me share about four of them with you this morning. Number one, we need to understand that brokenness is not primarily something that I feel, but rather it is a choice that I make. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 6 writes, and he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may what? Exalt you. He may do something significant in your life. Brokenness relates, Peter says, directly to humility. And Peter tells me, I must humble myself. This is not something anybody else can do for me. It's something I must do. I must make a conscious decision, a conscious choice that I'm going to put away my spiritual pride and that I'm going to be honest about myself, my relationship with God, the sin that is in my life, And I'm going to humble myself before God and allow him to do what he wants to do in my life. Let me tell you something. God will never move where there is spiritual pride. God will never move where there are people who make excuse for their sin, who overlook their sin, who don't ever do any spiritual inventory before God and ask him to reveal their sin. Brokenness is a choice. We come and we humble ourselves before God under his mighty hand so that he may do what he longs to do in our lives. So number one, brokenness is not, now the feelings that go along with it don't get me wrong, but it's not primarily a feeling. It's a choice that I must make to humble myself before God. Number two, brokenness means that I must agree with God about the true condition of my heart and my life as he sees it. Not as I see it, but as he sees it. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, the risen Christ is speaking to the church at Sardis. And he says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Let me tell you something about the people in the church at Sardis. The people in the church at Sardis had all the religious activity, (laughs) They had all the theological knowledge. They had all the outward behavior. They were going through all the motions. But the risen Christ saw through the facade. He saw behind the mask, and he said, here's the truth. (laughs) There's no spiritual life here. There's no passion and obsession with the mission of God. There's no real desire to walk in intimacy with me. And so brokenness means before I can do anything else after I make the decision to humble myself is I've got to agree with God about where I am spiritually, the condition of my heart in my life as he sees it. Number three, brokenness requires the shattering 
of my self-will so that the life and the Spirit of God can be released through me. Isaiah 66, 2, God says all these things, looking at his marvelous creation, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things come to be, declares the Lord. But, watch this, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Another word we find in the Bible that is synonymous with brokenness beside the word humility is this word contrite. If we look at the English etymology of this word, it it means to grind something down. It means to wear something away. It means to strip something down so that you get to its most basic level. Being broken before God means that I remove every pretense. I grind away every vestige of pride. I strip away every excuse, and I just simply allow God to expose who I really am. This is why I tremble at His Word, Isaiah says. Not because I'm afraid of it, but because I've allowed the searchlight of that Word to expose who I really am. Finally, brokenness results in the softening of the soil of my heart. Hosea 10, 12, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. You know what fallow ground is, don't you? Fallow ground is ground that had once been tilled, that had once been cultivated, that had once produced a crop but it had been allowed to sit and had become hard. And nothing could be planted there. Nothing could grow there until the plowman had come once again and worked every inch of that soil. See, to be broken means that I allow the plow of the Spirit of God to go right through my heart, right through my life, Break up any hardness, break up any callousness that has been allowed to develop there, to form toward God, toward His Word, or toward His will for my life. That helps us understand brokenness, I think, a little what it is. It's not really a definition, but it, it gives us a picture of what happens when brokenness occurs in the hearts and the lives of God's people. Now, the best thing I think I can do to help us understand this is to give you some illustrations. As always, uh, as as the proverb said, a picture's worth a thousand words. I want to give you a couple of them this morning. Two illustrations of brokenness. The first one comes from Jesus' story in Luke chapter 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let me read this. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, but treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man 
The tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here are two men, opposite in just about every way you can think of. Here's the Pharisee, part of the religious elite of his day, quick to condemn those that he didn't agree with, quick to condemn those he classified as evildoers, quick to list his own religious accomplishments. I mean, he says, I I fast twice a week. I I tithe. I'm I'm in church every time the, the doors are open. These are the numbers of a serious religious person. You can tell he's feeling good about himself. You can almost hear him say, I've got this religion thing down quite well. Thank you. I've got it all figured out. But here's the tax collector on the other hand. He paints quite a different picture, doesn't he? His sense of unworthiness will not even allow him to enter into the temple. Verse 13 tells us he stood at a distance and all he could say was, God, I'm a miserable sinner. Would you please have mercy on me? Do you see the difference? The Pharisee looks so adequate. He appears to have his spiritual life together in so many ways. He's the epitome of deep spirituality. In contrast, the tax collector looks so pathetic. His life is all dirty with sin. His mood seems dark and dreary. He doesn't look like anybody that we would want to imitate. And yet, yet, Jesus sums up this story by giving us the shocking word that it was the tax collector who went home justified, right with God and not the Pharisee. Why? Because the tax collector was broken. He was contrite. He was humble. Church, both of these men were sinners. The difference was the tax collector knew it. And he admitted it before God. Can I tell you something this morning and you not get mad at me? God is not particularly concerned that I'm standing on this stage this morning preaching to you. And He is not even particularly concerned that you are sitting out there listening to me. God is looking for something much deeper than that. You see, when we take all the spiritual stuff we do and and we lay it down, when we wade through all the spiritual fluff that so often surrounds our lives and our particular brand of American Christianity, 
when we shake it all up and we boil it all down, what God is really looking for today, here, right now, this morning, from you and from me, is a spirit of brokenness before Him. The Apostle James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God opposes the proud. Those who think they have it all together. Those who look with contempt on others. Those who believe there is no sin in their lives that God needs to deal with. God opposes the proud. He gives us grace to the humble, to the contrite, to those who are honest about who they are. Now there's another illustration. It comes from Psalm 51. This is the story of King David. And if you go to Psalm 51, you'll you'll and you and you look at the heading of the psalm, the, the heading of the Psalms is is that which comes between the chapter heading and, and verse 1. And many times it gives us the background of the psalm. And the heading to Psalm 51 says this, depending on the translation of Scripture that you have. It, it, the heading may read slightly different, but most of them will say something very similar to this. A psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. You remember that story, don't you? Those tragic events took place in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David's sin took place during a time when he was spiritually weak. Because he was spiritually weak, he not only committed adultery with Bathsheba, but you remember he tried to cover that sin up by having Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, intentionally killed on the battlefield. So he was not only an adulterer, he was a murderer. But David thought he'd covered up those great sins in his life. He thought he had all those loose ends neatly tied up. But then God sent the prophet Nathan to David. And Nathan told David a story that goes like this. Two men lived in a certain town. One was a very rich man who had lots of sheep and cattle. The other was a very poor man who had nothing but a little baby lamb. But he loved that lamb. That lamb ate from the poor man's table. It drank from the poor man's cup. It slept in the poor man's arms. It was more like a child than it was a lamb. And the poor man loved it. One day, a traveler came to the home of the rich man. But instead of going to his own flocks and herds, of which he had plenty, and selecting an animal from his own stock, he went to the poor man 
And he took that poor man's lamb and he killed it and he cooked it and he served it to his guest. And when David heard that story, you know the scripture says that when David heard that story, he burned with anger. And he said, that man deserves to die. And Nathan looked at David and said, David, you are that man. You are that man. You're the one who deserves to die. You took what belonged to somebody else. You abused your power as king. You became prideful and arrogant. You're the one that I'm talking about. And King David, when confronted with that truth, said in 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And through an agonizing process of being broken before God, David penned the 51st Psalm. Let me read portions of it. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, church, the great sin in so much of contemporary American Christianity today is spiritual pride. It's, it's spiritual arrogance. It's an attitude that says, I've got it all together. I've got this Christianity thing all figured out. I go to church. I live a good life. I know all of the answers to all of the theological questions. But we fail to see our own sinfulness. We become blind to the things in our own lives that are so far removed from the Spirit of Christ. And God says, I don't care about your sacrifices and your burnt offerings. I don't care about all the external things that you do that may fool other people and that may have even fooled you into thinking that your life is pleasing to me. No, God says to you and me this morning, right now, the sacrifices I want, the proof I'm looking for, is a spirit of brokenness before me, an honest admission of your own sinfulness, a coming clean about your own spiritual pride and arrogance, a contrite heart that cries out for forgiveness and says, oh God, I need you every hour. Brokenness before God. Isaiah 57, 15, we read it a moment ago. Let me read it again. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place, but also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lonely 
and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's what God's looking for today. Spirit of brokenness. That's when he can move. That's when he can work. That's when he can break down barriers. That's when he can restore relationships. That's when he can do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond all that you and I might dare to ask, think, or even imagine. So I want to close this morning by sharing with you the fragrance of brokenness. The fragrance of brokenness. I know you've got a message guide there in front of you, but I would encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to turn to John, the 12th chapter. When I talk about the fragrance of brokenness, John chapter 12 is the best possible picture of what this means. The best illustration I know of of what true brokenness looks like in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ In fact, what we see in John chapter 12 is so important that it is recorded not just by John, but by every other gospel writer. And that is almost never the case. But every single gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all include this story. Let me read it. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. But Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now Mark's account of this story, and you can see the verse there, chapter 14, verse 3 of Mark, tells us that the perfume Mary used to anoint Jesus was contained in an alabaster jar that had to be broken in order to pour this perfume out on Jesus. It says she broke the alabaster flask. Church, there is a brokenness in this story that goes far beyond the breaking of that flask. It's a brokenness we desperately need to recover because there is a fragrance found in brokenness. There is something very special and powerful about this attitude toward Jesus Christ, listen to me, that touches him like nothing else ever will. Let me share several things with you in closing about the fragrance of brokenness. Number one, the fragrance of brokenness permeates. It permeates. 
Do you see that there in verse 3 of John chapter 12? It says, after Mary broke this flask, the house was what? Filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Would you listen to me? There is something about brokenness before the Lord. There is something about an attitude that is open and honest before the Lord. Something about a spirit that says, Lord, I need you so desperately because I know my own sinfulness. There is something about that kind of brokenness that permeates homes and churches and communities. It can't be escaped from. It can't be explained away. The fragrance of brokenness permeates those places where it is found and it impacts those who see it and sense it and who come into contact with it. And no one does it impact more than the Lord Jesus himself. The fragrance of brokenness permeates. It fills those places where it is found. But the fragrance of brokenness not only permeates, it also penetrates. Now, this perfume that Mary poured on Jesus was a very special kind of aromatic spice. Verse 3 says it was about a pint of pure nard. Now, nard had a very special and almost exclusive use in New Testament times. It was used to prepare a dead body for burial. In that first century Palestinian culture where they did not practice embalming, this pungent aromatic spice was used to help slow the process of decomposition and decay and to cover up the odors that were associated with it. That's what nard was used for. In fact, if you look at verse 7 there, Jesus actually says, you need to leave Mary alone. It's intended that she save this spice for the day of my burial. Nard was used because of its penetrating power. Church, there is something about brokenness before the Lord that penetrates His heart and captures his attention like nothing else. It is not our religiosity. It is not our church attendance. It is not our traditions. It is not our religious practices that move his heart. It is brokenness before him. The fragrance of brokenness penetrates. But you need to understand the fragrance of brokenness, thirdly, also perplexes, and we need to be honest about this. I hate to say it, but when people see true brokenness before the Lord, they often don't understand it. It makes them uncomfortable. They don't like to be around it. 
This was Judas' reaction to Mary's brokenness in in verses 4 and 5 here. You'll see where Judas said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He was indignant. Now, before we say, well, that was Judas, of course, he didn't like it. He was a traitor and a thief. But if you look at Matthew's account of this incident, you'll see that all the disciples were implicated. Verses 8 and 9, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why was this wasted? For this could have been sold for a large sum given to the poor. Mark goes even further, chapter 14, verse 5, to say that the disciples actually scolded Mary for what she did. These are the spiritual folks. These are the disciples. These are the church people, if I can say it that way. And they were uncomfortable with seeing this kind of brokenness because the fragrance of brokenness perplexes. A life that is truly broken before the Lord, that is so transparent, that's so honest about his or her needs, makes other people uncomfortable. Even other Christians get uncomfortable when they're around it. We don't like it. We push brokenness away. We're uncomfortable with it. So it perplexes. There's one other thing I want you to see about the fragrance of brokenness. And that is that it perseveres. It perseveres. Hangs around. It's not easily dismissed. Long after Mary left the house where Jesus was, this fragrance of perfume lingered. It it continued to work on those who remained behind. Just listen to me. When your life is so poured out before the Lord, when you're not afraid to give yourself to Him in total abandonment, that kind of commitment and that kind of example will, will linger long after your life and my life are over. Look at what Jesus said about Mary's absolute brokenness before Him. Matthew 26, verse 13, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what Mary has done will also be told in memory of her. One of our great fears, church, sometimes in being broken before the Lord and being open and transparent and honest is that somehow we think our testimony is going to be weakened. People are going to think less of us. Our influence is going to be diminished or invalidated if we're honest about our sins and our struggles. But we need to understand this morning, just the opposite is true. When your life is so poured out, before the Lord, when you're not afraid to be honest about your struggles and your weaknesses and your failures and your pain, then that example and that testimony of humility will have an impact long after the Bible study is over, long after the worship service is over. Because the fragrance of brokenness perseveres. And when it is seen and 
when it is lived out and when we place ourselves in that kind of attitude before our Lord, it will continue to make a difference for a long, long time. One final thought. In Matthew's account of Mary's brokenness before the Lord, chapter 26, verse 7, we read, it says, A woman came up to Jesus with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head. The other accounts say that she poured it on his feet, but Matthew says she not only poured it on Jesus' feet, but she poured it on his head. Now, this event took place just prior to what you and I know as Passion Week, just a few days before Jesus' arrest and His crucifixion. And I just have to make this observation, church. When Mary poured this perfume on Jesus' head, it ran down through His hair onto His face, even into His beard, and dripped down onto His clothing. This pungent, aromatic, perfumed spice, this fragrance that had such permeating and penetrating and persevering power was poured out on Jesus just before he went to the cross for you and for me. And I cannot help but think that in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was in such agony that his sweat was like great drops of blood. I cannot help but think that when he was on trial before Herod and Pontius Pilate, I cannot help but when he heard the cries, crucify him. I cannot help but think that when he was being beaten, scourged, mocked, when, mocked, when the nails were being driven through his hands and his feet, and when the crown of thorns was rammed down on his head, and when he was hung suspended between heaven and earth to die on that cross, I cannot help but think perhaps as he breathed his last breath, that he smelled that lingering, penetrating, permeating, persevering perfume. And he remembered as he poured himself out for us how Mary had poured herself out for him. And maybe, just maybe, in the midst of the pain and the agony, it brought a smile to his face and caused him to realize that the cause was worth the cost. Oh, that's what Jesus longs to see in you and me today a brokenness before Him. He cannot move. He cannot speak. He cannot bless unless His people will humble themselves before Him with contrite hearts in a spirit of brokenness to say, Lord, here I am. I need You. I need You right now. I need you every day. 
It penetrates. It permeates. It perseveres. Yes, it perplexes. But this is what God is looking for this morning from you and from me. Heavenly Father, we bow before you this morning. And I pray, beginning with my own life and my own heart and my own will, that I will bow before you in humility, setting aside all spiritual pride, looking at no one but myself, allowing your Holy Spirit to shine the searchlight of truth into my heart. Father, that I will decide this morning as an act of my will to humble myself before you. That I will allow my self-will to be absolutely shattered. That I will agree with you about the condition of my own heart and my own life as you see it, not as I see it. And God, that you will have the opportunity this morning to take my life and begin a new work, a fresh work in it. Father, I don't know how you want to speak this morning. I don't know how you want to move. I don't know what you want to do, but I pray something significant would begin here this morning. That's my prayer. I pray it is the prayer of every one of us who names the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior of life. Now, Father, take this time. Use it for your honor and glory. It's our prayer in Jesus' name.